Welcome to An Examined Education, a podcast from the Cambridge School, a classical Christian school in San Diego, California, where we examine an education that prepares students to think well, love rightly, and live wisely. On today's episode of An Examined Education, we talk to Melissa Main and Esther Hahn about two science experiments our high school students conduct. From genetic engineering to creating their own experiments, our students experience science in fun and informative ways that widen their eyes to the wonder of God's creation. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Melissa. I'm so glad that you're able to join us here on An Examined Education. And uh, why, don't you, why don't we start out by having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do here at the Cambridge School. Hi. Hi. Well, it's great to be here today, Jeff. I am the science department chair, and I currently teach biology and AP biology, along with really trying to support all of our science teachers, both in the grammar school and the upper school and what they do so they can do it the best they can. Wow. So so you are in contact with all of those teachers. What what classes are being taken from seventh grade through 12th grade? So at seventh grade, the, our students take life science, which is like an intro to biology. And in eighth grade, students take a physical science, which is an intro to chemistry and an intro to physics. And in ninth grade, all students take biology. And in 10th grade, they take chemistry with the option or elective to take advanced placement biology. Then in 11th grade, they will take physics. All students take physics. And they have an elective option to take advanced placement chemistry. And then in 12th grade, that's our capstone science course here, um, all students take neuroscience. Oh, wow. And they also have an elective in their 12th grade year to take computer science. Oh, cool. That's great. So they have so many options, Mm -hmm. so many ways to dive deeper Mm -hmm. into science topics. That's great. I'm really excited because what we want to do is like pretend we're in your class. I want to do a deep dive into uh, an experiment. And I've heard this one is really exciting that we're going to talk about and the kids love it. So why don't you tell us about this experiment that uh, the kids love so much? Yes. Well, I love it too. So we really do enjoy it together. Um, Students have um, the opportunity to learn more about the code of life. So The code of life, of course, is DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, and then they learn how that DNA code is transcribed and translated into a protein message, and then that protein does really cool things. And so we talk about in class about how DNA is the universal code of life. There is not a life form that has ever been discovered which doesn't use this code. And so they they hear this and they're like, yeah, 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 but this experiment really helps them to kind of see that this code is universal and it also gives them just a tiny taste of the amazing different biotech that's going on both here in our San Diego area and in the world at large. So what they do is they start with a very humble form of bacteria. Um, It's just a regular kind of bacteria. Um, And what the students are then tasked to do is to cause those little bacteria to take up foreign DNA. So they're induced um, by a special cocktail of solutions 
to be a little bit leaky to foreign DNA. And so that foreign DNA happens to be a piece of genetically engineered, um, it's a genetically, genetically engineered segment that includes a green fluorescent protein gene. And that gene is derived from jellyfish. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So they actually take a bacteria and they introduce this jellyfish gene, which is a totally different species. Bacteria never make this jellyfish protein, but because the code of DNA is universal, all they need to do is give the bacteria a different sequence, and then they start making a jellyfish protein. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this jellyfish protein is, again, something that jellyfish have because it actually acts as a defense mechanism. So they have it, and then um, when they're swimming around, it bioluminescence bioluminesces under UV light. Um, and so it doesn't even look that cool until we turn off all the lights and then we expose the bacteria to the ultraviolet light that we have in the lab. And then all of a sudden they start glowing like a highlighter. Um, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So the bacteria start to grow mm -hmm. from the DNA that you're pulling from mm -hmm. jellyfish. Yeah. That's and why. They how do you do this? I mean, yeah. Are you injecting it? Like, what is the physical... The physical way that they're yeah. kind of inducing yeah. that, um, that uptake of genes. So this bacteria strain is a little bit leaky by nature. It was, it was engineered by folks in the lab to be a little bit um, more receptive to taking okay. up foreign DNA. But it's a combination of the chemical solution that we use. And we use a technique called heat shocking which is um, just a combination of making the little tiny test tube that we use hot and then cold and then hot again and then cold. And then <laughs> that, that whole process makes the cells more likely to take up the DNA. Okay. Yeah. And so it's really cool because we have this starter colony and they don't glow. We turn off all the lights um, and the bacteria don't glow. Yeah. And the DNA, we have a little vial of the DNA that we're trying to introduce, and that doesn't glow. Um, and it shouldn't because, again, DNA is just the code, um, okay. and the protein is what we're after. And so all of that happens. And then after we do this combination of things, a day later, they come to the lab. We're all really excited. <laughs> and then they open up their bacterial plates, and we turn off the lights. And sure enough, we have glowing colonies of bacteria. And they actually genetically transformed these bacteria to be producing a protein that they natively would never make. What what's the reaction from the kids? What do they what do they think? Well, I think I think they're really well, they're really excited. I think there's always an element of surprise, right? Because you they don't even know exactly what it's supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, they kind of believe you as their teacher on faith that like, okay, we're going to do this. Sure. That sounds fun. <laughs> um, but then when they actually see it and then they're, they're looking at like our positive control um, that has bacteria growing like normal, but they're not glowing because they haven't been given the DNA. And we have the negative control, which is where the bacteria are exposed to an antibiotic. And so everything's killed. And so... They have this beautiful experimental design that helps them to really isolate what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And it helps them to see in a very visual way um, that they were actually able to introduce a foreign component. 
Wow. That's so cool. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think it gets back at this idea of DNA as a code. And it's kind of like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie The Matrix, um, but when they're trying to get Neo up to speed, they mm-hmm. would like give him this code so he could be really good oh, right. at yeah. martial arts, yes. right? Or they would give Trinity this code so she could fly a helicopter, right? So it's it's like giving these little bacteria um, a code to make a jellyfish protein. Yeah. And they're like, okay, I know what to do with that. It's just a code. And they have the same machinery. Um, we, we all kind of have the same machinery to translate that code into a protein. Wow. Okay, so this is just on a on a small level, but I could see like students' minds moving forward and saying, oh, well, can we take uh, DNA from something else and inject it in something else and create a new product or whatever? Like, are, are there ethical questions that come into play um, like, should the bacteria be glowing? <laughs> should we be taking bacteria from a, a jellyfish? And anyway, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, those are all really good questions. Um, this particular technology is called a reporter gene. So scientists use it often in the lab because they are trying to learn about gene expression. And the great thing about green fluorescent protein is you can see where it's being expressed. So oftentimes when scientists are wanting to figure out they have this gene segment and they want to know, well, what does it do? What part of an embryo, what what part of a fruit fly, what part of um, a zebrafish is this gene do its thing? Um, We can't always tell. And so we use reporter genes to help us visualize, oh, this gene is active in the eye or this gene is active in the stomach or in the epithelium or, you know, other other places. So this is a really important just tool in basic research to help us understand. We've known about the code. The human genome has been um, coded, but we're still learning. There's so much to learn about what do these genes do? And so this is just one mechanism that scientists use to kind of understand gene expression. Um, And and of course, we do think about should we be editing our genes? Um, And we we talk about it. And of course, everything is through the lens as somebody who is a Christian. How should we be thinking about this? We definitely think about this Frankenstein idea of just because we can do things, should we do things? And so there's a lot of interesting discussion that can happen. Um, and, and things are changing because just recently we learned a lot about diabetes as a disease process, actually. And there are currently patients who have received gene therapy. And um, they're still, we're still in the process of kind of figuring out whether that cure is durable and, and real. Um, and that's in kind of an adult patient. But then that is a whole, a whole, in a whole different realm is the idea of embryos, right? Mm. So should we, okay, so it's one thing to treat an adult who's mm-hmm. consenting to this experiment, but it's another question altogether to think about, should we be modifying the genes of an embryo? Mm. Because mm-hmm. that, that just gets into a different set of questions. Does the embryo have a choice? Um, is it ethical to 
to even think or consider experimentation on human embryos. Currently, there's a moratorium. So scientists, the scientific community worldwide currently doesn't mm -hmm. experiment on human embryos. But the technology exists for that to happen. Wow. And how great, I think, for uh, our kids to be able to have those discussions with teachers like yourself that can really uh, shape and form uh, how they think and, and where they're going with their ideas. That's awesome. Right. Well, and I certainly don't claim to know all the answers, but I do really care about being a Christian that cares about the world. Mm -hmm. And I want to, we want to be good stewards of technology um, that we have and the Lord has provided. Um, and hopefully myself, along with their Bible teachers, along with their ethics teacher, along with other people in their life that God has placed there, will all help to shape their worldview so that when they consider these kinds of things, they're not thinking about it without an ethical or um, a framework, mm -hmm. a moral framework. Yeah. What is it that you hope, I guess, the kids get out of this particular experiment? Yeah. Well, I think the first most important thing is again, the universality of the DNA code and how just because it's a bacteria, it has DNA and it can, it can use that DNA um, that we give it to produce a protein that, that's not native to them. Mm -hmm. So it's the universality of the code. It's also this idea that they can do this type of science um, with the right support and it helps them to get a uh, it helps them, I think, to feel part of something, hmm. part of this wider framework. It might help them to kind of like try it on. Is this biotech world something that makes me passionate, something hmm. that makes me excited? Is it just interesting? Or maybe it's something that I want to explore further. So I'm hoping that it exposes them to that world a little bit as well. Great. Well, Melissa, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, Esther, and welcome to An Examined Education. Hi, Jeff. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. This should be fun. <laughs> um, so first, tell our listeners, um, our listener, just kidding, that was a joke. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, some of the classes that you teach here. Uh, yeah, so I teach uh, physics for the 11th grade class here, and I do 10th grade honors chemistry and then also AP chemistry back to the juniors. Wow. Wow. Okay, so um, we're kind of doing a deep dive into some of the subjects and and looking at how our Cambridge teachers bring these subjects to life. And um, it's not just that we're shooting out lots of information and they're just taking notes and then um, putting that back on a test, but um, how we're creative in the classroom. And so I wanted to ask you about uh, something that you do in your classroom uh, revolving around building an, an experiment or something like that. Can you tell us what you do in your class? Yeah, so um, when our students were in the middle of our stoichiometry unit, um, the students up to this point, they had um, gained knowledge about how to describe chemical reactions and being able to predict 
um, what would actually occur in a chemical reaction. The stoichiometry unit was like the quantitative leader to everything where they were pretty much being able to quantify how much of certain things were getting made or produced. Um, and the lab experiment that we had our students do is pretty simple. It was a very classic um, baking soda and vinegar reaction, okay. which uh, gas Volcano? is made. Yes, yes, yes. Like the very okay. classic. Um, I think everyone has done this at some point in their <laughs> kitchens or when they were back in grammar school. Um, but the students had to design their own experiment, pretty much trying to answer a question about limiting reactants. Um, and they had to figure out whether if you always increase the amount of one of the reactants, whether it would always lead to an increase in one of the products that was made. Hmm. Um, so the students had time to kind of brainstorm. They formed their own hypothesis to the question. Um, and then they had to come up with the procedure for how they actually wanted to test their hypothesis. Um, and the students had a lot of fun, I think, brainstorming ways of how to actually measure um, what the products were going to be. Okay. Um, like one group like decided to use balloons and capture the gas and then actually figure out um, the volume of the balloon. And that was completely their own idea. Um, a lot of the other groups figured out that gas was like going into the air. Um, so the students figured out that they could just weigh the before and after of the reaction. And they kind of picked what kind of method they wanted to use to actually get um, data to back up their okay. argument at the end of the lab. So Now, I just want to stop you because you say stoichiometry, yeah. like that's something I should know. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Yeah, um, so it's pretty much just looking at a chemical reaction. So okay. looking at what um, I knew that. reactions or what reactants you start with and then what you end up with at the end of the reaction. Um, and students are able to figure out like numerically like how much stuff they'll need to produce a certain amount of a specific chemical. Okay. Um, and it's just pretty much quantifying. I see. Um, the okay, chemical good. reactions that they had studied. I was pretty sure that's what it was. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that you knew <laughs> what it was. Um, <laughs> so, so this is awesome. So they're not only just they're not only doing an experiment, but they're figuring out or trying to guess at what the best way is to collect the data. Yes. Is that yes. it? Yeah. Nice. And some of the groups figured out that their methods were not that great. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to come back and they once they realized that their evidence um, wasn't that wonderful, um, they decided to come back in and um, work on getting better evidence hmm. to actually make their claim and argue their argument. So I thought that was kind of neat how there was a realization on their part for um, like a need for a design change in the procedure that they had come up with. What are some of your, like, why do you do that? What are some of your are your, of your goals uh, that you want to accomplish by ha having them create the experiment themselves? I think there's a lot of creativity that goes into the procedure for a lab. Um, and a lot of times, um, and I do these more traditional labs too, where students do get a procedure and they're collecting data and following kind of the steps to kind of get to a point. Um, but I really liked this lab because I think it gave students a space to think about data differently in terms of um, the process or sometimes the messiness of science. Um, and in there seeing that it's not always perfect and clean. Um, there's an element of like going back and having to revise. But I think it really gives like the like a better picture of what science looks like outside of the classroom to students. Okay. 
Um, and because of that, there seemed to be a lot more buy-in with the lab. I, it was like oh, baking soda cool. and vinegar, but they were really excited about baking soda and vinegar. So <laughs> That's great. So in order for them to, I mean, I think even have a clue of how to um, have choices of how to collect data, they must have had some practice or information ahead of time. Like what, what does Cambridge do to prepare them to be able to actually try to figure this out? I, I feel like coming into 10th grade, um, students come in with having just a really strong background of having done um, a lot of data collection already in their prior science classes. Um, and most importantly, that like bit of being able to like take their data and actually come with up, up with an argument to um, back up like this is my claim and knowing like how to argue um, with their evidence is something that they're really good at by the time they come to my classroom in the 10th grade. Um, so, yeah, I feel like they're pretty ready by the time they reach 10th grade science to be able to put all these things together for their own learning. So my next question then is on the other side of the experiment, as they look at other new experiments that maybe things that you just give them procedures to follow, mm -hmm. do you find that they look at it a little bit differently now that they've been through something where they've had to create it themselves? Yeah, I think um, some of them, when they do look at a procedure, I do get questioning like, oh, would it be better to do it this way? Um, or they're willing to take risks sometimes a lot more with the experiment than they have been. Um, and I also think like the meaning of the data that they collect, it's a little more meaningful for them now, mm -hmm. now that they've kind of seen um, like this is what might go wrong in an experiment and this is what you might have to do to fix it. Um, there's a lot more buy-in, I feel like, in terms of why they are collecting the data the way that they are collecting it. Then um, I feel like having done this kind of their um, creativity and coming up with their own procedure, they can like think about different scenarios with a similar line of thinking as well. So my question, next question is, are other schools doing this? Is this something that only Cambridge does or is this out there elsewhere? Yeah, so I feel like um, inquiry-based learning is pretty popular right now, I would say, in science education, letting students design their own experiment and kind of coming up with data that way. Um, but I do think what Cambridge does differently is we really prepare students to make really good arguments out of the data and the evidence that they collect and that strong ability for them to communicate like how they know what they know, um, what the data actually means. The communication aspect from what I've seen from the science students at Cambridge has been um, something really unique that um, I haven't seen when I was working in a public school in the past. So, yeah. That's great. Our kids yeah. are, are great at communicating mm -hmm. and building that argument. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> is that important? For scientists to have, yeah, and like, or absolutely. why is that important, I guess, for scientists to have? So I feel like um, a scientist being able to communicate what they know and how they know is fundamental to the nature of science. It's not just this building up of knowledge for oneself, but ultimately the goal is to be able to share that information with others and to really um, take what they have discovered or some sort of new component that they have a deeper understanding of and um, enlightening others with that knowledge. So I feel like taking away communication from science really just 
puts it into a vacuum of knowledge building that doesn't really have any significance behind it. Well, Esther, this has been a wonderful time to get to know a little bit of an in-depth look at one of your experiments uh, in your class. So I wish I could be in your class. I think that would be fun. (laughs) So, But thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. Thank you for listening to an examined education. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, check out our website, schedule a private tour, or reach out to the Advancement Office at cambridgeclassical.org. Until next time, think well, love rightly, and live wisely.